1: I felt like, you know, why haven't I read anything about this? Or, like, why haven't I heard about, like, what this is like? No one's told me. I didn't know what, like, rigor mortis was, you know? Like, and that was horrifying. Like, and so I felt like I needed to write about these things in some ways to, like, warn people.
0: This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Michelle Zonner is a rock star and a best-selling writer. You hear that when she talks. She's both dispassionately cool and cutting with her words. Like, the day before we spoke, she tweeted something that caught my eye. She wrote, the most Korean thing about me is that all my joy is rooted in vengeance.
1: I was thinking about, like, the small things that um, bring me great joy and, like, how they're they're really rooted in this kind of, like, full circle of vengeance. And that's, like, a really Korean thing. There's, like, a whole emotion um, that, like, a lot of people have talked about called Han in Korean culture that's basically, like, This, like, Koreans, like, have so much trauma from, like, being invaded and, like, a series of wars and being occupied um, that there's always this feeling that you're being slighted. And a lot of, like, people of my parents' generation, um, like, don't believe that that younger generations have Han, like, that that's something that's been phased out. But a lot of people in my generation still believe that that's, like, a real Korean quality in a way.
0: Like, what made you those words come to you and think, I'm going to type these out into my phone and send them out into the world?
1: Uh, the thing that that was specifically about was we recently played Jimmy Fallon. And I wrote this song um, a few years ago called Jimmy Fallon Big. And um, it was about my bass player of my old band, uh, Little Big League. He like sat me down at my kitchen table and was like, I really love Little Big League, but this other band has invited me to play as their touring bass player. And, you know, I have to pursue my dream and they're going to be like Jimmy Fallon big. I got to go do that. And, you know, I didn't blame him. He was like a brother to me. I was more of just like really full of shame that our band hadn't reached that point. And they actually never got to play Jimmy Fallon. They played Seth Myers, And then B- he... <laughs> And then a year later, he got fired. And then I actually, my band started taking off, like, without him, my new band. And then I invited him to play with us. And then three years later, we we became Jimmy Fallon Big on our own.
0: That's amazing. So wait, so Jimmy Fallon Big, bass player, got to play Jimmy Fallon with you?
1: Yes, that's correct. Okay. For the first time, yeah. At some point, like, success isn't even, it's not, I'm not even, like, after success. I'm just after revenge. <laughs>
0: Michelle's band that hit it Jimmy Fallon big is called Japanese Breakfast. They played The Tonight Show back in March to promote their new album called Jubilee, which includes this song Be Sweet. sweet Her new album is filled with joyful, upbeat pop songs like this one. But Michelle also published a memoir this year called Crying in H-Mart about her mother's death and grieving, including in H-Mart, a Korean supermarket chain. And she writes about this strange mix of sadness and success in her book. If there was a God, she wrote, it seemed my mother must have had her foot on his neck, demanding good things come my way. That if we had to be ripped apart right at our turning point, just when things were really starting to get good, the least God could do was make a few of her daughter's pipe dreams come true. Michelle's mom died in 2014, when Michelle was 25. It was a year in her life that Michelle had attached a lot of meaning to after growing up knowing that her mom had met and married her dad when she was 25.
1: She left her whole family at 25 uh, to be with this American man, um, and her life, like, really kind of started on this new chapter. So throughout my life, like, 25 had always been this age where she really believed that things were— um, I think that she really believed that I, you were a real adult at 25.
0: Yeah. Before, before you knew she was sick— as you were, you know, 23, 24 approaching 25, uh, did you feel like your life was coming together? Did you feel like you knew what your adulthood was going to look like?
1: Not at all. I was definitely like floundering in my early 20s and you know, part of that was like I was I was really pursuing my path as as an artist and and as a musician and I really really believed that Um, if I just kept at it, it was going to happen for me. Um, so I was really, uh, not in a, in a secure place
0: in my life at that time. (laughs) How are you paying for life at that point?
1: Um, I was working at restaurants, uh, and living in Philadelphia with like really cheap rent. My rent was like $300. I lived with like three boys And I, yeah, I just like would work at a restaurant and then I would go on tour for like three to five weeks and get fired and then come back and like frantically search for another job and then work there for a little bit, go on tour again, get fired. You know, in the music industry, you're always like being told to pay your dues and like that's a big part of it. But I think like when I started reaching my mid 20s, I I started feeling like, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is really going to happen to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was around this period of uncertainty that Michelle met the person who would eventually become her husband, Peter. He's a guitarist, too. They met through the bass player in Michelle's band.
1: He's having a birthday party at this karaoke bar. So we all went after band practice, and uh, he was singing uh, this, like, six and a half minute billy joel song scenes from an italian restaurant and uh yeah i mean i was just like really impressed right away because i was like this has like 48 bar instrumental breaks and like no one knows this song like they're all like these millennials who've like never heard the song before meet you anytime you want in our italian restaurant Like, everyone's really irritated at this guy who's, like, picked this really long song thing. And I just found that to be, like, really charming. And, you know, he's such a weird guy without, like, trying to be weird. So, like, he, I remember very specifically he wore this, like, he wore this, like, V-neck. But it wasn't even, like, a hipster V-neck. It was, like, it was, like, practically, like, it was, like, midway down to his, like, belly button, I want to say. It was, like so <laughs> odd. And he wore these, like, very large glasses. And he was just, like, so cartoonish. And then he held this microphone like, like it was a wine glass. Like, he was very, like, dainty in a funny way. And um, when he laughed, it was, like, the cross between, like, a Muppet and a little girl. Like, he just has, like the strangest laugh and I just like just felt so I was like seeing someone else actually at this at the time and I was just like I love him like I don't care like and I yeah I just was became obsessed with him
0: Peter and Michelle started dating and her band Little Big League put out their first album But just as some parts of Michelle's life in Philadelphia were starting to take shape, Michelle's mom, Chong Mi, was diagnosed with late-stage gastrointestinal cancer. Michelle's parents still lived in her hometown of Eugene, Oregon, where growing up, Michelle and her mom had a close but volatile relationship, particularly when Michelle was a teenager.
1: I mean, I was extremely sensitive. And, and very, uh, I think it was a combination of things like, you know, I, I had this parent and there was this huge cultural divide that we didn't even really think about. You know, I truly felt like all the things that these sort of like characteristics of my mother were these like idiosyncratic, like cruelties, like particularly like attached to her personality. And then in retrospect, a lot of it just comes from like our cultural difference, you know, and I, and Um, I don't think I realized that until, like, really recently, unfortunately, and um, I feel like I could have been a lot worse, but for my mom, I was, like, a complete nightmare.
0: And when you and your mother had conflict when you were a teenager, was it out loud or was it sort of stewing quiet?
1: Oh, it was definitely out loud. (laughs) I'm sure we were both shouters. Absolutely, yeah. But... You know, the part of, like, what I felt made my experience such a tragedy was, like, I was in that really sweet spot with my mom for, like, things were just starting to get really good. Um, we had just kind of, like, started to really forgive each other. Like, she had started to forgive me for being kind of, like, a rotten adolescent and lashing out at her. And I, in my private mind, like, had begun to forgive her for being quite overbearing in my childhood and and um sort of like in the way of what I felt like was my dream path and uh my mom told me like um you know I realized I've just never met someone like you that was to me like a real turning point uh in my relationship with my mother where she finally admitted like I think I just didn't get you you know uh-huh. like I just I've never met someone like you and like uh, maybe, maybe I was like kind of hard on you, but I was just trying to protect you. And sh- she kind of like was finally able to let me do my thing and like give me the space that I needed and, and has had maybe kind of given up a little bit on, tr- on trying to protect me from something.
0: So you, you, you are across the country from your family, from your parents when you find out that she's gotten a cancer diagnosis. Um, What did you do next?
1: It was kind of like, you know, all of the papers on the desk and you just take your arms and completely, like, wipe it out, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, It felt like one of those moments where it's just like, I have to, like, put away everything and just go there. I feel like part of being an only child, I always, like knew that there would be this moment where I would have to really like step up into this role. Like I, it was, it was always my worst nightmare. You know that this responsibility is going to like fall on you and you want to like really excel and you want to prove to your parent that like you're going to be there for them in the, in the way that they were there for you. So I knew right away that I had to be there. And, and the other thing I knew was that, you know, my aunt, my mother's younger sister, had had cancer, you know, two years before and had died from it. So we knew that, like, that that could happen and that that was Mm -hmm. very real and very close to us. Um, So I knew that I, like, wanted to be there with her and I wanted to be there with her as soon as possible because I didn't want... A big concern for me was, like, I wanted to be there before she started chemotherapy. I wanted us to have time together before, like, this part of her life, like, started, you know, um, and my parents, particularly my mom, did not want me to come. Um, and I think that part of it was because they were worried that that we were going to fight, and that my mom was um, that my mom needed to focus on getting better, and that instead of being like a positive addition, I was going to, I was actually going to make things <laughs> worse. Hmm. Was did she did she
0: directly communicate that to you that she was afraid you would add stress and not relieve it?
1: Well, she painted it more like you have your life and you're 25 and you have to like, this is your time to like focus on you and getting your own life together and your dad and I will handle this. We don't need you here. And then my dad privately kind of admitted to me that there was also this big fear that she was worried that we would we would argue. Um, and that was incredibly heart- hurtful for, to me. Yeah,
0: because you're describing this sense of, like, this duty that you've known that you have as an only child your entire life. And then.
1: Yeah, there was that. And there was also, like, I thought we were over this. You know what I mean? Like, we, we things are really great now. And you and I can talk like adults. And and, and you've never met someone like me, you know, remember? And, like, yeah. uh, and there was also the sense of, like, oh, my God, she's still holding on to this. I'm not, like. We haven't moved on from this. She still thinks of me as this, like, you know, petulant child. Yeah.
0: And did you just decide to go anyway?
1: I decided to go anyway, yeah.
0: When you arrived home in Eugene because you knew you just needed to be there, did you expect to be like the primary
1: caregiver of your mother? I don't think I knew how difficult it was going to be to live as a caretaker. And I think that um, I didn't expect to have as, as large of a role as I did. I mean, I, I wanted that role. You know, I wanted to step up and, and be the best at it. Um, but I don't think I knew what exactly that entailed to the to the level that we went through
0: before your mother was sick would you cook for her or was that new when she was ill
1: um it would be like a real novelty i think if i did um i might have like made a couple of things for her but i never like prepared dinner for her and when i came home it was always like she would cook for me when
0: you started cooking for her more regularly would you know what to do like, were you, like, looking up recipes on your phone? Like, how were you doing it?
1: You know, I grew up, like, eating Korean food, but, like, when you're when you're going through chemo, like, you can't eat so many things. Like, she didn't want to eat anything. So, like, not only was I not very skilled in cooking Korean food to begin with, but all of the dishes that I did know how to make or were familiar with were, like, very spicy or, like, extremely flavorful or really hot or really cold. And, like, you know, she couldn't, eat that kind of stuff. And so I was at a real loss because I never prepared or ate like the types of food that Korean people make for when someone is sick. And then this woman, her old friend came to live with us, Kay. She came to live with us for like three weeks and she ended up actually staying for like three months. Um, And when she came in, like she came in with all these different recipes that I'd never even heard of. Um, At first it was like, such a relief because I was like, oh my God, my mom is like finally eating something and like, I don't have to like worry about this as much. And then like slowly over time, um, I started feeling really edged out.
0: Yeah. I mean, the ways that you write about other women that help take care of your mom and the, the ways you noticed yourself feeling competitive with them, mm-hmm. I felt like was so honest and is not something I hear people admit out loud often, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: That was a very surprising emotion to feel. I mean, I even felt that way. I don't know if it's just like something that's unique to me or if it's something that a lot of people experience, but it was definitely a major part of my experience. And I know that sounds like very um, immature and like selfish, but I think that this actually happens a lot. It's like, There is this possessiveness that happens in caretaking um, where you kind of, like, lose yourself to it. Like, I remember, like, it reminds me of this time in college when, like, one of your girlfriends would, like, get sick from drinking and then, like, all these girls would, like, swarm around them to be like, let me take care of you. I'm your good friend. Like, I will take you to the bathroom, whatever. Like, there's this weird possessive quality of, like, um, like, I don't know, like, trying to get in the good graces of someone or something.
0: Michelle wrote music about this time. Her band Japanese Breakfast's first two albums were all about grief and sadness, including this song, Moon on the Bath. Coming up, I talk with Michelle about how watching her mom deteriorate led her to decide to plan a wedding.
1: I had watched my mom just lose every shred of her dignity. Like, I just watched her deteriorate to, like, such a horrible place. And it just makes me so sad to think of, like, how miserable she was. And I think that watching her go through that, that's what really made me feel like we need something, like anything to look forward to. And it felt like that was a thing that we could do together.
0: Like Michelle's Honor, we at Death, Sex, and Money are starting this summer by focusing on what brings us joy. Yasmeen and Afi are spending more time outside. For Yasmeen, that means gardening. She said, Our returning raspberry bushes have taken over a corner of the yard, and we should be eating them in a few weeks. As for Afi, she'll be reading in her backyard and biking to the beach. I just bought a hot yellow fanny pack to store a water bottle while I go on runs outside. And Katie is making lots of homemade popsicles, including some cookies and cream flavored ones. Andrew, our engineer, is enjoying getting photos and videos of his pandemic-born nephew, who's enjoying his very first summer. He's the first baby in the family since the 80s, Andrew said. And meet the newest members of our team, our summer interns, Marty Harding and Christy Song. Here's Marty's joy. Something bringing me joy this summer is spontaneous, sometimes really spontaneous, uh, video calls with my best friends who are all around the country. And Christy said her summer joy is the pile of books she's excited to get through. The top three are
1: probably the poetry chapbook, Dear Bear by a Lee, and also The Year of Blue Water by Yin Yi. And I have a graphic comic collection by Pal Studio.
0: That is a BTS, behind-the-scenes, look at what is bringing us joy. And you know what else is bringing me joy? The music of BTS. That's their song, Dynamite. Let us know what is bringing you joy this summer by emailing us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. On the next
1: episode... Out of the blue, my mom looks at me and says, have you ever had a pregnancy scare? And just the room, like, I felt like all the air had been sucked out of the room.
0: You tell us your stories about the hardest conversations you've ever had. Just in that moment, I decided, like, the lying stops today. With what seems like an endless amount of information at our fingertips, we tend to forget that wondering about things is really part of the journey to finding answers we're looking for. So when it comes to the hot topics of Israel, Judaism, and Zionism— There's so much to wonder about right now that it's hard to know where to turn. Enter the latest weekly podcast from Unpacked, Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam. Join hosts and educator extraordinaires Michal Biton and Noam Weissman as they tackle these topics and the uncomfortable questions that surround them with the goal of working towards the answers, together with their listeners. No matter where you're from, if you've ever wondered about anything, this is the podcast for you. So check it out. Subscribe to Wondering Jews with Michal and Noam on your favorite podcast app today. Wondering Jews is brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Michelle Zahner and her now husband, Peter, decided to get married in the fall of 2014. They planned their wedding in just three weeks.
1: My parents lived sort of like outside of the city in this like, this like big house with like um, five acres of land. And so we had like a big white tent uh, on the lawn. Uh, we had these like peach colored uh, tablecloths and um, it was beautiful. I I still feel like my wedding was like the best wedding ever. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm just saying that. Like I, a lot of our friends have said this as well, but it was like such a perfect and beautiful ceremony. Uh, and it was very homespun, but also Tasteful, <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Can you like when
0: you think about the dis- the discussions you had with your with your now husband about when and how to get married, and you know that so much of it was around your mother's illness and and um, terminal illness. Did it crowd out somehow this idea that this was a ceremony for the two of you?
1: Oh, I just. I didn't care (laughs) like I just was like I honestly like threatened the shit out of him I was like if this is something that you see yourself doing in the next five years and you don't do it now like I will never forgive you. Like, I just never, you know, marriage is, like, not a really serious thing, it wasn't as serious of a thing um, when I thought of it. I was, like, if we, if it doesn't work out, we just get divorced. It's not a big deal. Um, and then we'll be, like, these cool, like, young divorcees, and I can, like, call you my first husband, and that sounds, like, really sexy and mysterious. <laughs> like, um. And he was actually, like, a lot more, like, serious about it than I was, I think. Because I was, like, you know, in the face of, like, life and death, I was, like, who cares? You know, this is, like, a joke. I was, like, we don't even, you don't even have to sign the paper. Like, let's just throw this party. It'll give my mom, like, a sense of purpose and, like, some small joy to experience, like, in the in the face of, like, all of this, like, horrible shit that she's dealing with.
0: Um, when you think of your wedding, is there a detail about it that's that stands out as one that your mother helped
1: select um you know i don't know if it was because like she was on a lot of drugs at the time she wasn't like all the way there um i remember the dress that she wore the traditional korean dress that she wear she wore to my wedding largely because like her stomach was like distended so like um the dress like falls over your weight like uh it, it like balloons out out past her like bosom and so like uh it was very concealing in that way um I remember like seeing her wearing like her wig and like that dress for the first time and just like you know she didn't look sick at all but um I was really lucky that she was at my wedding and it was beautiful and she went into a coma a week later she really like held on to her strength to be there
0: when you think about her last days like w- what do you remember about just like the details of like like what were the s- sounds in the house like what 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 would you do while you were aware that she was fading
1: oh god um i mean i remember like the sound of her breath like slowing and I remember like trying to like detect a smell because that was something that Kay said would happen was that there would be like the smell of death. Um, and so I kept trying to like smell like what if, if, if it was near or something, um, you know, it was like such a painful time, like, because the person like, you know, empties out like in the bed. So we would have to like, you know, she would like pee the bed, and we would have to, like, change the sheets, like, twice a day, and, like, you know, it was just a terrible, horrible week of my life, just waiting, waiting for it to be over, you know, and, and in some ways, like, not wanting it to be over, but um, just, like, this torturous, like, she's there, but she's not really there, you know. I wanted, like, a fairy tale of, like, her, like, shooting out, into consciousness and saying like, you know, something like uh, reassuring, but you know, it never happened.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's really clear to me from the way you wrote about it, like how closely you were paying attention, um, which I think is like very loving. Like you didn't uh, shut down. Like you, you were just the details that you recall, and write about. Like you were taking it all in.
1: I think I was just like horrified, you know? I think that I had this real sense of urgency of like, people need to know that this is what happens because I did not have any idea of like what I was getting into or what death looked like and what illness looked like.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you describe because your mother died at home, you could decide when to tell someone else. Like, when, mm-hmm. when to invite um, someone to come and, and take her body. Like, what was that time like when you were with her after she was gone? Your husband was there. Your father was there. Like, what, what was it like to be next to her then?
1: Oh, it was so surreal. I mean, I remember, like, just I had, I think. I remember being, like, worried about my husband. Just like, man, this must be pretty intense for you (laughs) to be next to a dead body. Um, It didn't really register what was happening, and I was, like, more concerned about other people, and I was just sort of like, well, what the fuck do we do at this time now? You know, like, I didn't want her to be taken away, but I also was just like, I don't even... I, like, need to move on with... Like, it's just confusing, you know? Like, I just needed to move on with my life in some ways because we had been waiting for this moment for, like, a week, you know? And, and in some ways, it was like, well, we've laid here for a week. Like, what are we going to find now? Um, so I remember feeling that way. There's this, like, really beautiful line in this um, uh, this band called Mount Erie. Uh, he's, like, an indie musician, and his wife um, died of cancer, like, shortly after they had... A daughter and he wrote this heartbreaking album called a crow looked at me and like one of the lines that he writes about um his wife's passing is like i don't want to learn anything from this and that like is just such a heartbreaking like incredible line to me like that is that's how it feels you know like i i don't want to learn anything from this I don't want to learn anything from this. I love you.
0: Tell me what that means to you.
1: I think that especially as an artist, like that's something that you do a lot, you like investigate like these different moments in your life where something hard has happened and like what you took away from it, what was productive about it. And I think that in like the face of real tragedy, like there's this real like like, fatalistic moment where you're just like, I don't want to learn anything from this. There's nothing to be learned from this except for just, like, this deep, true sadness, and that's just what this is.
0: We we started our conversation by talking about... uh, Vengeful Joy, Joy with Roots in Vengeance, Um, when you, when you were like thinking about, you know, songs about joy, like, what's something in your life when you think of like, oh, this is beautifully, simply joyful, like what, what, what comes to mind?
1: Sometimes I'll just like look around at like the life that we've built together or like our home and like our books on the wall and and feel like just so much joy. Um and that's like a really new kind of amazing feeling. And I have a lot of joy when I'm writing music or playing music or um I have so much joy when I like figure something out creatively. I think that is like usually when I'm the most joyful. Oh, like
0: like is it um like, is it a lyric that comes to mind when you think of that moment or is it like a a particular like way to resolve a musical passage like or both?
1: Yeah, all of that. Just like when you like just like something clicks like uh, or you like even with writing the book, like, you know, when you hit home, like a home run on like, you know, a feeling and how to describe that feeling or like a passage just reads like really well or like, you know, I add a bridge to song or like I add a cool keyboard line or um, a great turn of phrase, those moments are are my some of my most joyful moments. Or like, you know, even this is really cocky, but like, you know, like when you gain the perspective of like, I did something really great creatively in your mind and mm-hmm. you feel really satisfied with yourself, like I, I really listened to m- this new record. Uh, recently, um, all the way through. And I had that just feeling where I was just like, you did that, kid.
0: Is there something, like, an object in your house right now that, like, you look at and you just feel, like, happy?
1: Oh, I have, like, lots of objects in my house that that make me pretty happy. Um, My, like, dishware makes me really happy. A lot of it was, like, my mom's, like, blue bowls from, like, our house. And I'm really happy that we have those. And... Uh, right now I'm looking at these like gold ducks that, uh, my godparents got for my husband and I that are like traditional marriage ducks that like are supposed to face <laughs> the way you say ducks. <laughs> <it's really funny>. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, uh, yeah, I was just kind of silly. Like if you, if they're facing each other, your partner and you are like doing well. And if you're like, have a fight, you like face them away. So like <laughs> if my husband is not being sweet, I'll like turn the duck, uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it gets you out of the fight. Yeah. That's yeah. really smart. I think everyone should have marriage ducks. Oh, you're
1: going to turn this duck around. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is Michelle Zahner. The new album from her band, Japanese Breakfast, is called Jubilee, and it includes this song called Savage Good Boy. Her memoir, Crying in H-Mart, is out now, and she just announced will be made into a movie. Michelle also made a Spotify playlist with songs that show up in her book, including that Billy Joel gem. There's a link to that playlist in our show notes. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Affie Yellow Duke. The rest of our team includes Katie Bishop, Emily Botin, Yasmin Khan, and Andrew Dunn. Our interns are Marty Harding and Christy Song. The Reverend John DeLore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music, and most of the music in this episode is by Japanese Breakfast. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sail picks that's P-I-C-S, and the show is at DeathSexMoney on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Blair Malkin in Charleston, West Virginia, who is a sustaining member of Death Sex and Money, and shout out to West Virginians everywhere, wherever you are. You can join Blair and support what we do here by going to DeathSexMoney.org slash donate.